chapter 2, and we're going to do uh, verses 14 to 26 together. Let me just quickly say, I, I should get this out of the way before I jump in here. Uh, next week is, is our last prayer summit of the year. We usually do seven in a year, and prayer summit is a special time where we invite the whole church congregation to come together for a, a time of prayer. It's a, an hour and a half. It's 6 to 7.30 next Sunday night. So 6 to 7.30, and we, we end on time. Uh, and um, we're going to do some special time of prayer in that uh, prayer summit to pray for the families of the Humboldt Broncos. And so we invite you, if, you uh, if that's something that's been heavy on your heart, come and pray together. Again, lots of people have been praying, but this is a time to, where we can pray together. So we'll spend some special time uh, at that prayer summit praying specifically for them. And, uh, of course, when you start praying for other people's kids, uh, you get drawn, I think, closer in your heart to um, the preciousness of your own kids. So we're also going to spend some time in that prayer summit praying for our students. So, um, so just to let you know about that. But that's next Sunday, 6 to 7.30. Tell you a week in advance so you can, you can move things on your calendar if you need to do that. All right, James chapter 2, 14 to 26. And uh, we've, been, we've been going through the book of James. We've been asking the question, what does it look like to be an apprentice of Jesus, to become like him? If he's our master, what does it look like to enter into his school of development and change to become like him? So let's read at verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And this is what we call a rhetorical question, meaning someone says it rhetorically, but you don't answer it. But let me just read it again, and then let's do what you're not supposed to do with rhetorical question. Let's answer it. Because there's an obvious answer to every rhetorical question. Let me read it again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? What's the answer? No or maybe no? <laughs> yes, it's a rhetorical question. So, so whether you agree with the answer or not, that's actually what the speaker is declaring. He's saying, can such a faith save them? He's saying, obviously, the speaker's saying, obviously, no. Obviously, no. So let's go on. Suppose a brother or sister, this is the illustration that James uses. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, you're going to find as we read this passage, there's lots of descriptions about faith. Uh, you're going to find this description, dead faith. Uh, you're going to find that also um, useless faith. Uh, there's, we'll even get into demonic faith. That's coming. Uh, but the big question is the question that's asked in the very first sentence, and that's about saving faith. That's the big question. What good is it, my brothers? I'm going to go back just so we get this into our heads. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Save them. And save them from what? Well, save them from separation, eternal separation from God. 
I, won't, I don't have a long time to, to do all the background, but to basically tell you that our sins separate us from God. Either, either our sin will separate us from God or God will separate us from our sins. One of the two is going to happen. So we're either going to be with God eternally or separated from God eternally. And that's what the Bible teaches us, is that our sin, our tendency to make our lives about ourselves and not about God, we, it's sort of wish-granting is what happens, Right? I want, my, I want it to be all about myself. I want my life to be all about me. And God doesn't force himself upon us, but actually grants that request and eternally grants that request. That instead of getting God, having a relationship with God, which is what we were created for, we are separated from him, which is a horrible outcome. But that's the enormity of our human choice that we have in life. So it's faith that saves us. But what kind of faith? And James is is tackling one aspect of that whole question of what kind of faith can actually save someone. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? I'll keep reading. Suppose a brother or sister, this is the illustration, is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So it's useless faith, is what he's implying. In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action. It is dead. Now, if you are here last week, you heard uh, Pastor Dacey talk about uh, the, the passage that went before this, which was about how Christians are not supposed to show favoritism to the rich over the poor. Well, and that actually could be expanded many ways. It could be uh, over your own ethnic background, over another ethnic background, or uh, your gender over another gender. There could be lots of different ways where we show favoritism. And we're not supposed to show favoritism. Now, the, the main illustration was rich and poor. So it's no wonder that James in the next part, he's using that as an illustration. So suppose that one of you who has the means to help someone, someone else and they're a brother. In fact, they're both, he's talking about two Christians. So one Christian doesn't have clothes or daily food. And the other one has clothes and has daily food. You say, well, hey buddy, where's your jacket? It's freezing. This is Canada. Well, now it's not freezing, but it was freezing for a long time, wasn't it? All right? I mean, I was, this, when I wrote this illustration, it was still freezing. Anyhow, <laughs> where's your jacket, buddy? Remember what Jesus taught about jackets? He says, if you have two jackets and the other guy has none, you've got his jacket. <laughs> because you've got two jackets. <laughs> That's how it works. And James, the half-brother, the younger half-brother of Jesus who likes to punch you in the gut with everything he teaches, he comes along and he says, remember what Jesus taught? So go in peace, keep warm and well-fed sounds absolutely hollow because they do nothing about the physical need. In the same way, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead faith. It's dead. Now, I'm going to go into this part, but let me explain. It says, but someone will say. So he's, he's throwing out this person who's like an objector or a person who has this point to make. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Uh, this is probably one of the most complex things to try to figure out exactly this next line of thought with James. I had to read five different versions on it in order to come up with the fact that I didn't know which one was right. 
Um, but I'm just going to do it the simplest way I possibly can to so not get hung up on it. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So just imagine someone says, well, you know, it could be that somebody is really uh, has a lot of faith. And then another person um, does a lot of good deeds. What's the big deal? You know, you got that, you got that. And, and James comes down on this and just says, no, 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 no. These things are not separate. In fact, these things are not antagonistic. It's not faith versus deeds that we're talking about today. It's about whether you have a dead faith or a living faith. That's the contrast he's, and, the, and the comparison that he's trying to make. It's whether you have a, a, a faith that's fully alive in all that it's supposed to be or whether you have a dead faith that's not what it's supposed to be. That's the big contrast. Not faith versus deeds. It's living faith versus dead faith. So then he goes on. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. So, so now imagine, okay, again, we're using the, the, the guy saying, hey, what about one guy has faith, one guy has deeds? He says, well, okay, if you had somebody who had faith, but there's no evidence of that faith, there's no deeds to go with it, he says, that's not how it's supposed to be. I will show you my faith by my deeds. And then he goes on, and it's interesting. He says, you believe there's one God. So that would be sort of, some people might claim that it's faith. I, I don't believe. In that day, remember, lots of gods, lots of idols, lots of temples. So Zeus, Artemis, whatever, different ones, all these different gods that people would worship. He'd say, you believe correctly there's one God. You think, oh, that's pretty good faith, right? Proper theological thinking. And then he goes on to, to hammer them and he says, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You know, the demons believe accurate things about God. They don't believe in many gods. They believe in one God. They know. They've experienced they believe that he alone is God, that he will judge the world. But it doesn't make them in a right position with God. It doesn't make them live like Jesus because they haven't given themselves to Jesus. It simply makes them shudder with fear. The fact that there is one God, that he is sovereign, that he will judge the world is not a comfort to the demons. And James is saying, if you have proper theology, you think just absolutely correctly about God, let's say you went to Bible college and seminary and you can write out extensive papers on the nature of God and who he is and all those things, he says, you still might be as insecure or should be as insecure in your relationship to God as the demons are. Because that's not enough. It's not just enough to mentally assent to certain things about God or to, to believe that these things are true. James is implying that that's a dead faith, that there's something else that's needed. So he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he gives Illustrations. First is Abraham. He says, was not our father Abraham? Everybody loved Abraham, especially the Jewish people. The Jewish people did. The rest didn't care. But the Jewish really, really loved Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous 
for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now, have you heard that story? It's a crazy one, right? God says to, to Abraham, who's old and his wife is old, you're going to have descendants like, that'll be so numerous, they'll be like a, a whole nation. It's this incredible promise because they're too old to have kids anymore. And so it's like, wow. And so, Abraham, go out at night, count the stars. Count the stars. And when you're counting the stars, know that I'm going to give you more kids than the stars you can count. Right? So as he's counting the stars, he's thinking, I don't have any kids, but you're going to give me descendants, so many. It's an incredible promise. And when Abraham, uh, when Abraham's wife Sarah is pregnant with Isaac, it's so exciting. And then the baby is born. And it's like, this is amazing. Abraham just trusted God and he had a baby. And then comes this crazy story where God says, I want you to take your son. I want you to take him up Mount Moriah. Sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings. I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him. It's crazy. If you didn't know the end of the story right now, you'd be like, I don't like God. If you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd be like, whoa. I can't serve that God. I don't love that God. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm cool with that. Abraham, it says in Hebrews, he believed that God would raise his son from the dead. That's how much he trusted God. So he goes up the hill, and God actually has a different plan. He gets up the hill. He gets to this point. He's totally obedient in every way. And at the last second, an angel speaks to him and says, okay, stop. It's evident that you trust God. And in the end, of course, he doesn't sacrifice his son. Happy ending, just in case you're worried if you don't know the end of the story. He says, it's evident that you trust God. So James is saying when he, he was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son. He's basically saying, well, I don't know. God said he'd give me a son, and that that son would give me many descendants, and I'd have a, a huge nation, and he's made this promise, and so God must be, he must be able to fulfill his promise. Even if my son were to die, he'll raise him back to life again because God will fulfill his promise. And so he goes, he goes all the way to the, to the very last second in trusting God, and God says, okay, it's totally true. The next verse says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. That's a really helpful word, complete. James is making the point that your faith and your actions together or your actions and your belief together, they complete your faith. That they work together. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God or he trusted God. And it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, a lot of people, when they get to this verse, because it's one of the most um, troubling verses in the Bible, because it seems like at this point that Paul is contradicting another writer in the Bible whose name, I mean, I already said it. James is contradicting Paul, who also writes stuff in the Bible. Let me read you a verse out of Paul's writings, Romans 3, 28. It says, for we, yeah, there we go, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, and there's other stuff like that that Paul writes, where it sounds like Paul says it's faith alone, and then, and, and, and James says, well, no, it's faith plus works. 
And so do they contradict each other? Do they disagree? Now let me give you an illustration. Suppose one of my British cousins, I, my dad's British, so suppose one of my British cousins from Yorkshire, England, comes to visit me. And, uh, and let's say he's actually visiting me right now, which is not true, but let's just say that was the case. And let's say uh, after church is done, he texts me and he says, I want, I want to go to the park and play football, exclamation point. He's excited about it. And then I text him back and say, I want to go to the park and play soccer, exclamation point. And now let's say a friend of mine in church who doesn't, you know, sports is not their thing, like Daisy Richardson or someone like that. And um, they lean over and look at what I'm texting. And they say, oh, it's too bad you guys can't agree. And I say, what do you mean? We're going to go play together. Oh, no, no, no. You're not reading your text well enough, Steve. See, he wants to play football. You want to play soccer. I say, Daisy, Daisy, it's okay. I'm going to go get my shin pads and we're going to have a great time. And it's, no, no, no. You're contradicting each other, Steve. Now, what does she need to know in order to understand that we're not contradicting each other? Football is soccer in England and the rest of the world, actually. Right? <laughs> we're the only ones who call it soccer. It's just like, you know how the, when, when hockey is shown on American TV, they have something around the puck so you can see it? Right? So we don't understand soccer either. So that's okay. Or football. All you have to know is that in England, when they want to play a game of soccer, they call it football. That's all you have to know. It's just so close, but yet so far away if you don't know that. Now, it's James and Paul are similar. You sometimes hear one statement about Paul, and Paul will say, you're, you're made right with God by faith alone. And then you hear James, and he's saying, you're not made right by God with faith alone. It's faith and works. And you think, oh, man, these guys, too bad. They totally disagree with us. Oh, contradiction in the Bible. Wow, we're going to have to quit reading the Bible. And it's just like, oh, you need the context. Just like you need the British context for the football reference. You need the rest of the context. If you have the rest of the context, you don't think that way anymore. If you read the Bible long enough, you go, oh, yeah, Paul and James, they're totally on the same page. But they are focusing on specific things. They're focusing on specific things. In fact, they both focus on specific ditches that we can get into with our thinking. And, and let me just show you some verses that will help you with that. Okay? So first, let's look at uh, James 1.18. Does, does Paul think that it's your good works that make you right with God? Does he think that? James 1.18 says this. He says, he chose, this is God, he chose to give us birth. Remember Jesus said, you must be born again. Right? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that's the gospel, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Right? So he created a whole bunch of people, but he wanted to make people new, reborn people. And how did that happen? Through our good works? No, it happened through God's choice to give us birth through the word of truth, which we receive. It's the truth about Jesus. It's the gospel truth that we receive. So James wasn't against the gospel. James wasn't just saying, you know, you want to be right with God, just do a whole bunch of good things. That's not what he believed. Some people might teach that. That's not true. He believed that it was an act of God that, that causes us to have the opportunity to be right with God. 
Then look at Paul. Well, does Paul think that, you know, doing good things is no, of no value? Listen to this. This, is, this will get you going one way and then go the other way. Well, you get deked out by these verses. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Oh, okay. Not by works. Works is not a big... Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't say that yet. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us, prepared in advance for us to do. If you stopped at the end of verse 9, you'd think, nope, no works, no good deeds, not necessary, not a part of it, not a part of the picture. And then you'd read the rest and go, oh, we were created to do good works, and God prepared for us in advance to do that, but it's not our works that earn our salvation. Probably the simplest way, if, you're, if you just want to get through it quick, the simplest way is that our good deeds don't earn salvation, but they're evidence that we are. They don't earn, but they're evidence. They don't earn, but they're evidence. If you, if you say, I, I, I'm having trouble following you, Steve, Pastor Steve, you're not helping me today, that's, I'm trying to cut through it for you, make it simpler. Galatians 5.16, another point where Paul shows this path through the whole, the whole path. Galatians 5.6, I mean, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That was, the Jews were debating about you know, how to be right with God. And was circumcision, which is a big deal for them, was that part of the path? an important part of the path to becoming right with God. And, and, and Paul cuts through it. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So where do good deeds fit in? Your faith in Christ naturally will express itself in loving actions towards other people. So your works don't earn, but they sure are evidence Now, I want to I talk about who, who I'm praying for in this sermon. Do you know pastors, when they get up to share stuff like I'm doing, they often have taken some time to pray specifically for people before they come to do this. And I'll tell you who I've been praying for. Two, I've, I've had two groups of people in my mind. The first group of people, I would, I, um, they're the people that I've, I sort of have a title in my mind that might be falsely secure. And the second group of people are those who might be falsely insecure. And, and, and you'll find out if you're one of them maybe in a second. And if you find out you're one of them, just know I've been praying for you, so it's, it's all good. Okay? Falsely secure. Let me, I'll just read you someone's account. This is some, not my personal, this is some other guy writing about his interaction with someone. He says, I was talking with someone recently who said they were a Christian, and we were talking about heaven. And he told me he was hoping to go to heaven because he'd lived a pretty good life. So God would probably let him in. I said to him, this is not mine, but this is someone else's story. I said to him, if that's the case, if you give living a pretty good life is enough to get into heaven, he said, then why did God send Jesus to die? 
If we're good enough to get into heaven by living a good life, why did God send Jesus to the cross? Our rebellion against God is more serious than we realize. We think of ourselves as good, but we're not exactly unbiased judges. We selectively compare ourselves to others who seem worse than us in some areas. We fail to acknowledge how little thought we've really given to living for God, how self-centered rather than God-centered we are. Our sin is serious. But of course, there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of all of those who turn from their sins, who put their trust in his death on the cross and live for him. So I thought that was interesting. I thought, I think that's pretty common. If you said, well, you know, why would, why would uh, you know, God allow you to live with him f- forever in eternity, in heaven? People would say, well, I- I've lived a pretty good life. I think people think that there's some sort of uh, cosmic balance, you know, good on the one side, bad on the other. Let's stack up the good just so it out-tips the bad. And that's cool. Got to be cool with that. So for... God is not sort of this mix of good and bad. God is absolutely good. He's pure and holy and righteous in every way. And he desires for human beings to be that as well. And you say, whoa, nobody's perfect. Well, that's true. Hence, we need a savior. We need a savior. I, I am, I'm pretty glad about this. Um, I don't know all that heaven's going to be about. I imagine that everything I love on earth will be just that much better in heaven. That's my simple way of doing it, right? If God created this, and it's pretty sweet, even with evil present in our day, even with bad effects in our day, like if I eat too much ice cream, I have bad effects. I'm looking forward to heavenly ice cream with no bad effects. I'm sure they have lots of four-liter tubs just for me. (laughs) And it's going to be awesome. But whatever it is, whatever you experience here that you say, well, that's great, it's awesome, God made it good here, but I can tell it's tainted because I experienced the negatives of it too. I just imagine the good up there. But I don't know all that's, all that, that's going to be in heaven, but I, I know that how God's created me now and the things that I enjoy now that are good here, I expect he'll surpass them there. That I'll enjoy it even more. But one of the things is the absence of... Uh, the taint of sin. The absence of the taint of sin. I mean, some, we see it in everywhere. We see it in our, our lives, our, our relationships. Boy, in our relationships, we ever see it. It's like, oh, why, why are relationships some, so hard sometimes? Our family relationships, our relationships with our friends, our coworkers, why are they so hard? The taint of sin is all over those things. And you're saying, I just want peace and harmony and getting along. Well, I mean, what we're all crying out for is the kingdom of God. We're all crying out for what God has promised us. And so I want to speak to those two groups. Again, the falsely secure might be the people who say, hey, I'm pretty sure, or I'm mostly sure, that you get to heaven just because you've been a good person. But God's word doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that if you're mostly good or better than the other people you're comparing yourself to, that that's God's standard. He calls us to be perfect as he's perfect. We'll say, well, that's impossible. Nobody can be perfect. That's true. 
we realize that that selfishness is inside of us, that there's a tendency inside of us to make the whole world about me and, and how can God ever receive me and accept me then? And the beautiful thing is he's made a rescue plan for us and that is sending his son. Again, he was perfect. And so he could take our place. If someone was supposed to uh, stand before God and be totally accepted, it was Jesus. And so he takes our place and there's this exchange that the Bible talks about where uh, he takes upon us when he goes to the cross and dies in our place, he takes upon us our sin. And in return, we can have his righteousness. What a crazy, you know, can you imagine that in like human terms that we understand? Is there anyone you know you'd like to switch bank accounts with? I can pick a few right off the top of my head. This is what happens. Jesus, who has a perfect standing with God and who lives a sinless life, he comes before the, he goes to the cross and takes all the shame. He doesn't deserve a bit of it on himself. He takes all the blame for all of our sin. And in exchange, we have the opportunity to receive his righteousness. Wow. What a crazy trade. It's amazing. But that's, it's through faith in what Christ has done that we could possibly stand in the presence of God as righteous. Not in, yeah, I lived, I lived a pretty good life. Because the Bible says no, no one's righteous, not one. No one can stand before God and say, I think I did good enough. You pretty much should accept me. God say, no, I, your sin was such a big deal. Only the death of my son could make you right. Is that what you're trusting in? Is that what you're standing in today? Is that where your faith is? That's a saving faith. So I want to, so I'm worshiping and I'm praying here at the front and I'm saying, Lord, don't let anybody who's secure, who is falsely secure, they think they're good because they lived a pretty good life and they think that that's going to be good with God. Don't let any of them leave today with that thought in their head anymore. Let them understand that there's a way to be right with God. But it's through faith in Jesus, it's through putting their trust in Jesus, depending on Jesus for forgiveness of sin and also to live a life like Jesus as well. That's, that's the evidence part as well. But, but let them trust in Jesus, not trust in their own goodness. And then the other group is those who are falsely insecure. Falsely insecure. And I've, I've run into this a lot. People who've grown up in the, in the church, or, um, they wonder am I right with God? And they're always, it's like they're never enjoying relationship with God because they're always checking if they have relationship with God. It's like um, living in an old house in Moose Jaw. A few of you do, don't you? You know what it's like? You always sort of, every few years you go out and check the foundation because we got those basements, those cracks, and we know some are the good cracks and some are the bad cracks. (laughs) And those ones we just parge, and then those ones are uh uh-oh, right? But you know what? If you went out every day and looked at your foundation, you would not enjoy living in your house. I don't check my foundation every day. Every couple years I do. I say, yeah, look at that. Or in spring or whatever. Probably once a year, that's enough. But if you did it every day, you wouldn't be lying in your bed securely. You'd be sitting at your table securely. You'd just be thinking, are we safe? Are we good? 
Is this fine? But people do that with their faith all the time. They're just saying, I don't know. Am I right with God? Am I wrong with God? That was one of my teenage uh, experiences with my best friend. He came from a family, and again, I've told it, talked about it at some time. He came from a family where they were just sort of on pins and needles about whether they were right with God. Over and over again, they'd say, I, you know, they, they would say, well, you know, in a given week, we sort of fall in and out of the favor of God, and we're, we're, either, we're either right with God or we're wrong with God, and if we die in the wrong moment, we're toast. That's what they believed. And I was just like, I had been taught by my parents, you know, that you can know that you're a child of God, that you can know it. And I struggled with it when I was a child. I struggled with it probably from ages six to eight. That was when I had my big battle. And by eight, it was done. And since eight to now, I've never worried that I am not a child of God. And I'd rather live like that in any way. Not just because I'm trying to say that that's true. I believe 100% that that's true. I remember when I came to this church 15 years ago, I had a, um, a fellow pastor in this community. I was sitting with them around a, a table. And they said, uh, so you're from such and such denomination, blah, 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 theological talk, na na na. who cares? And then he says, do you believe in eternal security? Which is sort of, a, you know, you could, I think that's some, he said it sort of in not the nicest way. So I thought it meant you just think, you know, you pray a prayer and then you're good forever. And that's what you actually believe. Which I don't really believe that like that. But I, I said it this way. I said, well, I don't believe in eternal insecurity. I don't believe in living every day wondering if I belong to Jesus. I did struggle with that between the ages of six to eight. But at eight, God made it firm in my life. God made it clear in my life. And I knew that I belonged to him. And have I lived perfectly from then till now? No. But I haven't been thinking, am I holding on to God hard enough? I've been trusting in the fact that he's holding on to me ever since that day. And so for those who are falsely insecure, you are actually, I believe you are meant to live knowing that you are a child of God. I'm going to give you a test at the end. Give you a test at the end to help you. But I don't think this is something you should do all the time, every day. I think you should be freed from that. I think it's okay to once in a while look at scriptures that talk about what it, look, what it means to be born again, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to belong to him, to be right with God. Look at that occasionally, but don't check the foundation every single day. Just live in it. Love it. Serve Jesus. Live for him. Know that you're your, you're, you're his. I love Robert Murray McShane. Can we get his quote up there? He says, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. We are a very self-introspective culture. And you know what? The more I look at myself, the more discouraged I am. Maybe you don't have that problem. Maybe you look at self and you're pretty pumped. But every time I look at myself, I think, oh, man, I fail. Oh, man, I'm not consistent. Oh, I haven't learned this discipline yet. I'm not winning in this area. I can find a million reasons to be discouraged about me. But if I look at Christ, I get excited because I have experienced his grace and I know that his grace is there for me in every failure, in every setback, in every moment. And so if I look at Christ, you know what? My mentality begins to change. I begin to live with confidence. I begin to live uh, with strength. 
Those setbacks don't knock me down like they used to. I used to stay on the floor a long time when I got knocked down. Not anymore. I bounce up a lot. I'm, I'm like, you know, those clowns that you can punch. I'm a lot more like that now. Not the real clowns. Not the real ones, the inflated ones. Yeah, don't punch real clowns. They're sad. Anyhow, they're already sad. <laughs> Anyhow. But I experience that in my life now because of looking at Jesus. The more I look at Jesus, the more encouraged I am. Because who's the main person in my story anyhow? It's not me. It's Jesus. He's the hero in my story. It wasn't that Steve did something to change his life and become right with God. No, Jesus did it all. What am I depending on when I stand in the presence of God? Things that I've done? No. It doesn't add up to enough. I trust in what Jesus has done and that he's given me his righteousness in exchange for my sin. Look to Jesus 10 times for every time you look at yourself and you'll be a lot happier. Let me give you, let me jump into the response. This is my worry when I came to this passage. I thought, we're going to talk about having faith without deeds, that is dead faith, and then everyone in the church would then run out to do deeds to earn their way right to God. That was my worry. Well, I had several worries. That was one of my worries. And so let me give you one more quote, and then I'll jump into the test at the end. Here we go. It's um, the J.I. Packer quote. Do we have that one next? There we go. The truth is that though we were justified by, justified by faith alone, that means made right with God, justified, uh, the faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces fruit or good works and a transformed life. See, if I'm looking at my performance... Right? A little bit of self-examination can be good, but a ton of self-examination can get twisted. If I'm looking at my performance as the main indicator in my life, I'm looking at the wrong thing. But looking to Jesus again and again, the author and perfecter of my faith, the one who started me on the road of faith, the one who walked me all the way to the end, looking to him, trusting in him, depending on him, first, that he's made me his own, so salvation. But secondly, that he can produce good fruit through me. Depending on him for every aspect of my life. The more I look to him, the more I depend on him. The more my life is not about Steve, you're not measuring up, but Jesus is a great provider. He's a great leader. And he's doing it and he's showing it. Like I have so many cool stories in my life where I'm like, that is not a story about Steve. That's a story. Let me tell you one real quick. I'm on, I'm on vacation. I didn't know if I'd tell this story today or not. I'm on vacation with my son. It's like a father-son trip, and we're in the States. This was like a week and a half ago. And um, we're staring, staying in an Airbnb. So that means we're in, a, we're in a bedroom of a house, and several of these bedrooms in these houses are Airbnbs that people are renting. And so people are coming and going. Anyhow, I get to know this, this lady. Her name's Cynthia. And uh, she find, early in the week, she asked, or, or on the Sunday morning, she asked us, what, what are you guys doing today? You know, we go out to explore. And I said, well, we're actually going to church. So, cat's out of the bag. Now you know you're a Christian or something like that. And so, whatever. So, I go to church, come back. It's later on. She's fumbling with her computer and she's not happy. And I say, What's up, Cynthia? And she says, I dropped my Mac. And ever since I dropped it, it won't work. And I was like, Ooh. So then I have a Mac too. I, I, you know, pastors hate to admit that because it has an apple with a bite out of it on the back. And, you know. <laughs> Anyhow. It's all about grace, right? It's all about grace. (laughs) 
Anyhow, so I have a Mac too, and I'm trying to help her with her Mac. And so I'm saying, well, did you try this? Did you try this? Did you try this? And we're, we're going through it all. And she knows her Mac as good as I know my Mac, which is not tons, but we know. We've used it. We know all the tricks. And, and it's like nothing works, everything I ask her about. But let me tell you, before I started asking her about, like, all the things she could do to maybe help fix her Mac, I had, and all, I call it a whisper, but it's not a whisper. I just had a thought come to my mind, and this was the thought. You need to pray for her computer. Now, you guys know about my crazy stories about my wife? I didn't say crazy wife. I said crazy stories about my wife. <laughs> my wife prays for inanimate objects. Now, there's a precedent in the Old Testament scriptures. There was an axe head that went down into the uh, water, and it was lost, and that was a very valuable tool. And so then God does a miracle, and the axe head floats, right? So God cares about tools, surprisingly. So when my wife phones me and says, yeah, you know how the computer on the van was glitching and glitching and glitching and would barely run? I prayed for it. It's fine now. And then the day when she phoned me and she said, you know how the dishwasher wouldn't drain and you wouldn't call a repairman? I prayed for it and it drained. And then the next day she says, it's still not working. And then I said, okay, well, I guess I have to phone a repairman. I really should. But then she phones me later and says, never mind, I prayed for it and it's working. So this is what I tell Cynthia and her Mac. I say, my wife prays for inanimate objects. And they get fixed. Would you mind if I pray for your Mac? <laughs> now, it's not a big risk. I'm, I'm in, the, I'm in the States. I don't know. I'll never see her again. You know, if I end up looking like a fool, I'm taking a very small risk. I'm never probably going to see Cynthia again in my life, right? So I'm thinking, no big worries, no big worries. But we've troubleshooted everything, and she says the big thing is I put the cord in the end, and on a Mac, that cord lights up. It's got a little bing light that goes green, and then it goes red, and then, you know, it's charging. Some of you people also will admit you have Macs. Anyhow, so she, she says, I've had that plugged in for two days, and the light hasn't come on. And I didn't drop, she didn't drop the cord. She dropped the Mac, so she thinks, I think inside something's wrong, and so that connection can't happen. So I can't even charge it up, and uh, I, I basically, this computer's useless to me now. And I said, okay. And so I, I just said, I'm going to pray for your Mac. She said it was okay. So I put my hand on, the, you know, there's sort of the keyboard, and then there's a little trackpad, and then there's the blanks on the side. put my hand on one of the blanks on the side, and I said, Jesus, you know that Cynthia uses this, this Mac, as a, as a tool for her work and, uh, and also to connect with her friends and her family. So I just ask you that you would heal her computer and as soon as I did that, blink, the light came on. Now, Cynthia jumped back. <laughs> she didn't know that God had already told me I needed to pray for Max. So she had no warning about this, right? So she jumped back. But she's a very spiritual person, not centered around Jesus, but a very spiritual person. And so she was like, high five, she said. And I was like, all right. And then we entered into this dialogue. I, we're going to get to the test in a bit in case you're worried about if you're saved. We'll get to it. She says to me this. She says, you have great faith. Now, that's not actually terrible. There's some level. I have simple faith. And it's not at the level of my faith, I think, that's the big deal. It's obedience to God that matters. Some level of simple faith is part of it. 
but it's who I have faith in. It's who I have faith in. I have done nothing to earn the healing of Cynthia's computer. Nothing. So she says, you have great faith. And I'm like, uh, you know, I've sort of got nothing to say. And then she says, who helped you? And I say, what do you mean, who helped me? Like, that sort of threw me off, the way she asked it. No, I want to know who helped you. We're going to find out who helped you. And I was like, okay, Cynthia, whoa, whoa, what's going on? She pulls out a deck of cards out of her purse. In her deck, of, she says, I have a deck of exalted, uh, no, exalted, exalted is not the word. Uh, but masters, exalted masters. Not exalted, but glorified masters or some word like that. And that's not quite the right word. But anyhow, she goes, she goes we're going to do an exercise to find out which one of these helped you. And I said, I, I pushed the cards away and I said, no, no, Cynthia. I said, no. I prayed in the name of Jesus and I prayed to Jesus. That's who helped you. And I only pray in the name of Jesus and to Jesus. Nobody else. And he loves me and he loves you. And it's that simple. It's that simple. See, it's ever and always going to only be Jesus. It's ever and always going to only be Jesus. Our stories about Jesus, the power is in Jesus. He did the work on the cross, not us. He gives us the power to live today, to produce fruit, to love our families and neighbors and enemies. It's always only going to be Jesus. It's never going to be the glory coming back here. And the glory's not going anywhere else either. It's always got to come back to Jesus because he's the one. It's always going to come back to Jesus. Let me read you a verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. I promise you a test at the end, and I'm praying that the Lord will use this in your life. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So this is a verse we don't read very often. And I wouldn't read it very often because I don't want people to be in that insecure state of checking, checking, checking. Am I right with God? Am I right with God? I want people to walk confidently. I want them to know their gods. But I don't want people in the other camp who are like, yeah, I'm sure I'm okay with God. I must be. I mean, isn't everybody? I don't want that either. If they're standing on some, if you're standing on some undependable foundation in your life, in relationship to God. I don't want that. I want that knocked out from under you and for you to stand on something solid. I want you to really know. I want you to have a real relationship. I want you to be depending on Christ. So let me just tell you a few things about this, about this test. So, so first, you, if you are saved, if you have saving faith that James talked about, then you are forgiven for all the bad things you've ever done and will ever do, and you're accepted by God as his child. You're given eternal life by faith in Jesus and not by doing good things or being a good person. So if you're right with God, that's the basis. And God wants you to be confident. 
God wants you to know it. God wants you to be confident you belong to him. He doesn't want you to worry about your relationship on, on and on. 1 John 5.13, let me read that to you. Oh, first, John 3.16, sorry, getting, my, getting ahead. John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, not yourself, not your good works, not what you've done, but believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then 1 John 5.13 talks about the confidence that we can have. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to enjoy confidence, joy, and assurance. He wants to be, you to be sure that you're okay with God. He wants you to go to bed at night and have peace in this area. He wants you to know that if you die in the middle of your sleep, you'll go to be with him. My dad died last summer in the middle of his sleep. One of the most peaceful, he, by the way, crazy prayers? Not so crazy. Dad prayed for a good death. My dad prayed for a good death. And he died in his sleep. Not just Max. All sorts of things. So how can we know if, we ha- if we're right with God? How can we know that? Let me just go through a test for you here. And I've got it. I, want, I made some pictures to help you. Here we go. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is the first verse that probably would be a good test verse. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So let me just put the first one out here. This will be mostly symmetrical, I think. So if your heart says, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my master. You are my God. I want to know your will. I want to follow you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't cook that up on your own. Okay, here's here's another one. Romans 8, 15 to 16. You You have received the spirit of adoption. Yeah, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Let's put the second one out here. This means that when your heart rises up from deep down and says, God, you're my father, and I am your child, I need a father. I'm a child dependent on you. When your heart, you find that, your heart is talking like that to God, that's a witness of the Holy Spirit in you that you belong to him. So if you find that in, your, in yourself, you should be encouraged. Here's another one. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we've passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. So, and you could put sisters in there too, brothers and sisters. Basically, other Christians. One of the effects of being loved by Jesus when he died for us and gave himself for us is that we start loving people like he does, especially other Christians. So if you find yourself loving other Christians, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, that's the work of God. If you find yourself being glad that other people are saved, that they are actually followers of Jesus... If you find yourself, like I do, often when we do communion and you guys stream forward to receive the the symbols of his body and his blood, I often get emotional in those moments because I just think every person who comes forward is a miracle of God. 
And I find myself thanking God again and again for you. And I'm saying, God, you, I don't know their story, but you brought them to you. You did that. You did that. You are the hero of all of these stories. And I don't even know all of these stories, but you're the hero of everyone. And you made them my brother and you made them my sister, whether I know their name or not. They're my family. And my family streams up here once a month for communion. And I just go, that's my family. And I love my family. And that's not a work of me. That's not from me. That's from Jesus. If I love my brother like that, if I say, oh, this is amazing. Thank you that you brought them to you. That's coming from God. If you find that in your heart, be encouraged. Let me read you two more. 1 John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Now, uh, let, me, let me just clarify this one, because this one might say, oh man, I sinned, because that's a, now, I'm, now I'm losing it. Let me just explain that for you. No one makes a practice of sinning. We've already, if you read, in, let me read another one. John, 1 John 1.10 talks about, uh, well, I'll just reference it. It talks about if you claim that you have no sin, that you're a liar. If you claim that, that you're a liar. So Christians do keep on sinning. That might not be news to most of you. But they do keep on sinning. Here's the thing. Our relationship to sin changes, though. Instead of saying, well, you know, justifying it or saying it's no big deal, we confess our sin. We bring it back to God. We say, I know this sin doesn't end my relationship with God, but it's like it brings a cold front in between me and God. I know it's not right between me and God right now. I'm confident that I'm still his child, that he wants good things for me, but I'm not allowing by my sin some of those good things to happen in my life. In fact, I'm opening myself up to some bad things by sinning, and I confess that sin. I close off that access to the enemy and I make things right with God. And so we change our way of responding to sin in our life. So this verse doesn't mean that you never sin. What it means is it's not a pattern of behavior where you say, I love my sin, or, or I'm going to keep my sin, or I don't care what God says, I'm going to keep on doing this no matter what effect it has in my life. That would be a cause for concern. But if you say, no, I... For example, last week, Daisy talked about favoritism. There were some ouch moments in that sermon. For me, there were some ouch moments. Probably for some of you, there were some ouch moments too. If you were like, oh, right, God wants me to walk in a different way, and I recognize in myself an area where I did show favoritism and I shouldn't have. And, and if you walked away like going, oh, that's wrong, not like, Oh, I ideologically agree with what Daisy said, but no, that's not what God wants for me. That's a sign that God's Holy Spirit is at work in you. Because we're not making friends with sin. We're not settling in with sin. We're not pursuing sin. We're pursuing Jesus. Here's the last one. It's 1 John 4, 6. We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. I'll stop there. This is the apostles writing it. They're basically saying, people who have a right relationship with God, they want to know what God thinks. They want to know what God's commands are. In fact, 
they, in, they, they really want that. If you, if you meet people and they really love the Bible, I'm not, I'm not talking about your, you know, sometimes we measure it by how disciplined we are to read the Bible. That's another thing. Let me just push that aside for a second. If you actually come to, let's say you don't even read the Bible, hardly. And I'm not recommending that. Definitely not recommending that. But when you come to church and you hear someone read the Bible and, and somehow you're like, oh yeah, that's what I need. That's what I want. And there's an openness and a receptivity to the word of God. Then that should encourage you. That should encourage you. If every time you hear someone read the Bible, you're sort of stiff-arming it and saying, no, I'm, I'm and, and holding that back and it's just doubt, disbelief, and rejection, then I'd be concerned. But if you say, no, I, I want the instructions of God in my life. I want guidance of God. I want the teaching of God. I want his leadership going forward and, and the Bible is amazing for that. Right? I love reading the Bible. It gives me a vacation from self-inspection and I can focus on Jesus. It allows me to glory in who he is and not wallow in who I am. Then that should encourage you. So, does your heart say that Jesus is your master? Does your heart say that you're his child and he's your father? Does your heart say that other ones who follow Jesus are your brothers and sisters and there's a love in your heart for them, a growing love? I'm not talking about you don't have your days. I'm just talking about are you excited when people give their lives to Christ? Have you fallen out of love with sin? Do you find your heart saying, I know that's not right? Do you feel that conviction? And you, and you don't always, but maybe at least consistently you're confessing and repenting? And do you want more of instruction from God's word? Then I would say those are things that would help you know, help you test the foundation, help you know about your, your relationship with God. Now let's use one last test. Let's pray. One last test. You've heard some scriptures. Hopefully enough to give you a good perspective on this. And I totally trust the word of God and the Holy Spirit so we're going to do a moment of listening prayer and it's a simple question. The question is, Jesus, do I belong to you? You've heard what the scriptures say and hopefully that's been clear. But now I want you to allow the spirit to speak into your life. Jesus, do I belong to you? So let's just take a moment of silence and just allow that question. Jesus, I want Please help every person in this room, help each one of us to know where we stand with you. I pray you give us clarity. So we're asking together in this moment, Jesus, do I belong to you?
Now, if you came out of that listening moment, and again, don't expect an audible voice, but maybe you had a thought come to your mind that, yeah, I actually am his. Or I think by what's been described this morning, I think I'm not his. Or you may have landed where you're like, I'm still unsure. How could I still be unsure? My recommendation to you is to offer yourself to God. If you say, I know I'm his, then be a living sacrifice. Offer yourself to God. Say, God, would you just produce fruit in me? Let me walk in the confidence that I belong to you and let me just run for you. Not just sort of, sort of like before, walk with question marks around everything. Let me, just, let me just go forward for you. Live for you. Live courageously for you. Use you as my example and also the one that I depend on in order to do what you've called me to do in this life. So if, you, if that's where you're at, you say, man, man, God just made it solid for me. Then stand on that and run with that. If you're saying, I, I don't have that same level of confidence, whether you're unsure or whether you know for sure that you're not one of his. Now I want to lead you in a sample prayer. We'll all pray it together because nobody prays alone here. I'll lead you in a sample prayer, but it's really about your heart getting right with God. Right? When I was six, I prayed a prayer. And all the way up till eight, I prayed prayers and prayers and prayers. And then at eight, God just made it so clear. God made it so clear. I've been praying today for some of you, God would make it so clear that you are his and that some of you, God would make it so clear that you aren't. And that's not mean. Both of those are loving because I want you all to experience the love of God to the depth of your being and to walk with him. Not walk alone. Not live only for yourself, but to live for the one who gave himself for you. So I'm going to give a sample prayer. And if you say, I'm not in the right place, I need to make, get in the right place, this could be your prayer today. Okay? Let's all pray together out loud so that nobody's praying alone. Jesus, thank you for your love. And it was a love put into action for me. Thank you for your sacrificial death on the cross. Thank you for taking my penalty for the sins that I committed. Thank you for offering forgiveness for every one of them. I receive that forgiveness now. I don't deserve it, but I receive it. Thank you that you take away shame and you replace it with gratitude. I want to live for you. Empower me to live for you. I'm saying no to sin. It will no longer be my master. But you are my leader and my guide. I will follow you. I offer you all that I am. 
the good and the bad. Will you use me for your glory? Amen. Amen. If this, again, I, I come into this topic praying like crazy because I want there to be no confusion and I don't want you to be in a bad place at the end. If you say, I'm still struggling, come talk to our prayer teams, come talk to me. You just need a little more assurance. You need something to help you. We are eager to give it. Eager, eager, eager to give it. Because I want you to know, no, 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 that you belong to God. And then I want you to bear all sorts of fruit that is in line with that. Okay? So we're going to turn over to the worship team. They're going to lead us in one last song. Our prayer teams, you guys can come now and you can come. Uh, if you want someone to pray with you, just come and grab them after the song is done.